Hello and welcome to We Are The University. I'm your host, Nick Saffel. In this episode, we speak to Jennifer Howard Grenville, the Diageo Professor in Organisation Studies at the Cambridge Judge Business School. This is a fascinating conversation where we look at organisational culture through an 800-year-old lens by examining how Cambridge University sustains and conveys a culture. Jennifer debunks the myths about organisational culture and explains how culture is more than a mere statement of values, but instead reflects the practices and expectations of people working together. We also discuss what the future of work might look like post-COVID-19 and how organisations and leaders can maintain a culture after the shift to remote working. Organisational change and working culture change has been a sort of, well, it's a talking point on everyone's minds because they've gone through it for the last sort of six months so can you tell me about like the sort of concepts of organizational change you know what sort of goes into creating a culture sure organizational cultures are interesting because they're talked about a great deal they're fretted about by managers and leaders who want to have the right kind of culture that supports innovation and is attractive to employees and um, enables collaboration and even is fun but um, getting a culture right is, is, is a major concern for many, but it's also a sort of source of mystery. And I think what helps me is I was trained um, to think about culture as much as an anthropologist would. So anthropologists obviously study cultures, um, but business anthropologists um, study business cultures. And in much the same way, an anthropologist seeks to go and live with and live like the people in that setting and understand what are the unspoken norms and rules and how do they relate to each other and relate to the world around them. Um, that's sort of the work of, of people who study business cultures. And culture is important because it's how a group learns to get along and do the things that it needs to do to survive in the world. So a business culture or an organizational culture, because universities have cultures, departments have cultures, other types of organizations have cultures, um, really they're evolved ways that that group of people has worked out how to work together, um, to do the things that they're there to do in the world, to, you know, in our cases, the university to educate students and to do research. Um, in the cases of an organization, business organization, to offer a product or service. So there's a collective goal but there's also a particular way that that group has worked out how do we as this disparate group of people come together to get that work done. And so it really has two key ingredients. It has the sort of beliefs about how we think the world, work is, world works and sort of what our place is in it. Um, and it has practices. And those are just the day-to-day -day things that we do that in some ways sort of reflect those beliefs. And I think many people, when they think about culture, get worried about the beliefs or values and what the grand statements are and forget that actually really the living and breathing culture is the things that we do every single day. Um, and that, that any of those things can actually change over time. And so coming back to your original question of sort of what's happened in the last six months, well, everything's changed in terms of, the, of, of many of the practices that we are doing um, in our daily work lives. But the goals towards which we're aiming with those practices and our sort of understanding of how they fit together surely has not changed or, or, or shouldn't have changed as much. Um, but you can see for that reason that culture sort of has to be this reinforcing 
um, interaction between what we do in the day-to-day -day and how it makes sense to us. And so when one of those two things shifts, they come out of alignment. And so we can feel a lot of strain on culture. Is it a sort of a chicken or the egg situation? I'm just going back to the idea of sport. You know, you always hear about the idea of winning culture and implementing a winning culture. And you've mentioned about the, um, the bit about day-to-day -day versus values. Can you implement it by implementing people or how does it sort of start that way? Well, I think it's the same answer to the chicken and the egg, which is it's both and it's endlessly, endlessly circulating between both. Although, um, you know, some of our ideas about organizational culture come from organizational scholars such as Ed Schein, who's an emeritus professor at MIT. And he talks about the value of founders and leaders in establishing a culture in a business organization. And we can see that. You know, we see these startup companies and very much some of them get shaped, um, you know, by their founding leader. Um, you take a look at Apple and Steve Jobs, even though he was a founder and then left and then came back again, is sort of associated iconically with what that company is about. And even in his absence, the attention to detail and design and surprise and delight that was at the heart of what he thought he was delivering. Um, lives on and so in some ways um you know when an organization is just getting started obviously people can set up a culture so it's not just like an ancient tribe where it's evolved over generations and, and generations um and then those those founders ideals and ways of doing things tend to get imprinted into the organization but of course we see every organization has to sort of shift and accommodate societal norms so i think that's what's interesting about business cultures is they're 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 very much a part of their environments they're not you know sort of set off remotely in some corner of the world where they can develop their own system of belief and system of how they do things. And so, so cultures, while they do reflect um, sort of leaders' values and ideas um, quite strongly in many cases, they only do so if people's day-to-day -day practices uphold those. So it is absolutely the chicken and the egg. And so I think many people are very able to see the misalignments in their culture um, and and that, that just reinforces the idea that it, that it is a chicken and egg thing which is that no matter how how much we we want to say the culture is x um if it's not lived as x it's not x and on that saying and living how do you visualize it and how do you communicate it do you actually say this is the culture or this is the culture we want to implement. I think that's interesting because all of us, you know, you brought up sports earlier, all of us have been members of culture. So as I mentioned, culture is just something that happens when a group has been together for a certain amount of time and worked out how they do their thing together. Now, some, some you know, culture is, is actually learned by being in it. So we don't tell someone what the culture is we can tell them organizations are constantly doing induction training and tell tell their new employees you know these are the seven values and here's a founding story about our organization and we survived this dramatic moment and this is why you know it's so important that we collaborate for example but really the newcomer to an organization learns by watching what other people do they learn by how their immediate peers and supervisors act and react, they watch. And so I think this is one of the biggest things that has changed right now when work is so much relying on, on remote and online. But on the other hand, at some point, 
to really learn the ropes, you really need to immerse yourself. I think you need to be there. I'm, I might be old fashioned, but, but you know, we're humans and that's a lot of how we communicate and read, not just what is done or what is said about what is done, but what is really done. Now that people aren't physically together, what are some of the sort of losses that are occurring? I'm thinking during because of remote working, obviously there's difficulties with communication, but I'm thinking of a productivity sort of um, design, um, creativity sort of point of view. So I think there are, there are losses and also gains on, on lots of levels, as you pointed out. I mean, when I think about culture, I like to think across sort of what we think of as levels in the organization. So from the individual perspective, why is a culture important to an individual? Well, first of all, there is a sense of socialization. It's how we learn the unwritten rules about how we get ahead here. Um, I can read the, the job description, I can read my performance evaluation criteria, but it's actually by watching and experiencing what others do and how they do it that I actually come to understand and contextualize those things. For the individual, there's also a huge sense of belonging. I think many of us find that our identity gets wrapped up in our work. And if you ask somebody, you know, why or how, there's a feeling about their organization. There's a sense of what the organization stands for and is about that I think goes beyond, again, you know, what the formal description of the work is or what the, what the intended goals of the organization are even. So there's a, there's a sense of belonging to a culture and an identity that is larger than oneself that is really important. And I, I, again, as we just mentioned, you know, business organizations are doing a phenomenal job thinking about how do they actually onboard new employees but at the end of the day, it, it is very hard to imagine for those of us who've been in, in, in a more traditional setting. At the group level or the team level, groups and teams use culture as a way of understanding how they collaborate. You know, what are the norms for getting work done? How do they share out tasks? At what points and how do they come together to, um, you know, to, to generate new ideas versus leave each other alone. So that idea of group work is actually really strongly underpinned by the culture. And I think that becomes, that has been done, I think, quite effectively, again, in a remote working setting. But the question is, how durable is that? And finally, for the organization as a whole, um, there's a lot of concern that it is the long-term effects, not the short-term effects. So everybody says, you know, in the short-term, productivity is actually up. Well, fantastic. That's because people aren't spending their time commuting. That's because in lockdown, they had no other choice yeah. of how to spend their leisure time. And by the way, many of them were homeschooling. So what, how was that productivity gain achieved? Was it achieved by everybody staying up till 2 a.m.? In which case, that's not uh, uh, you know, long run viable. Yeah. So I look at that and I say, okay, fine, your productivity in the short term might be up. But what does face-to-face -face working enable? It enables serendipity. It enables those two minutes walking into a meeting or walking out of a meeting where you connect with a colleague around something. And in, in ways that are not easy to trace, but are profoundly important, those moments really shape the long-term viability for an organization in terms of you know, opportunities to think about new things, think creatively. Um, it's not that it can't be done online. It's just that it's, it doesn't happen in the same way. And so I think those are where some of the really big losses will show up, but they won't show up for a while. Okay. And, and thinking about the long-term sort of um, effects, how can you evaluate or, or how can you, I guess you can't quantify organizational culture. So how do you sort of evaluate it? 
Well, people evaluate culture in all sorts of ways. In fact, I'll tell you a story from my, um, my uh, dissertation data collection, which was now um, more than 20 years ago. Um, these days, it's very, very common to do culture surveys. So anyone who has worked in a business organization might have been subject to at least an annual culture survey where lots and lots of questions are asked. And generally, those are useful surveys, but they generally ask about how am I feeling supported? How is my management? What is the climate for work? Do I feel that I can speak up if I have a concern? Um, are my professional development goals being taken care of? To me, those don't say a whole lot about culture. Um, and they don't necessarily say a whole lot about what might be negative about a culture. But in the organization I was studying as a doctoral student, it was at the time the world's largest semiconductor manufacturer. So this is an organization absolutely chock filled with um, you know, PhDs, master's level researchers working at the forefront of, of creating um, faster and faster semiconductor chips. And um, we were, I was there as an intern and as a researcher, and we were all pulled into an auditorium to have a very important update from senior management in which one of the pieces included the announcement that there would be a culture survey conducted over the coming weeks. And in order to get good enough results on the culture survey, we were all required to attend a mandatory meeting in our work groups and fill out the culture survey. And they had a goal that 90% plus of employees would fill out the culture survey. And I sat there, even at the time, as a very young person um, and graduate student thinking, wow, that just told me more about the culture than anything you'll get from the survey. Yeah, of course. <laughs> You know, I don't want to make light of culture surveys, they have a role, but it is impossible to quantify in my view. Um, and I think some of the ways that we know a culture are when we suddenly get plunged into a different one. Um, so we, we know our own culture by definition becomes comfort, it becomes normal, it becomes taken for granted, it's how we do things around here. So somebody leaving one organization and joining another organization is far more likely to observe what the culture is in their first six months or a year um, because they're contrasting it to what they know and it stands out to them. You know, by the same token, suddenly being shifting to doing our work online um, helps us see what we miss about the culture. And so I think that that's one of the things that's particularly difficult about studying culture is the people best placed to explain a culture probably can't. Um, it's like asking the goldfish to describe water. They're so enmeshed in, in it that it doesn't make sense. Um, and so there's lots of ways that we tune to as researchers on um, trying to understand organizational culture. One of them is not using the word culture when we're asking people about it. Um, the other is by literally living with and living like. I spent nine months doing my, um, you know, full-time immersed in the organization that I was studying for um, my doctoral work to really start to think about, you know, understand what things meant to them, writing daily field notes just like an anthropologist would. Um, and the other way is to ask, um, to ask people who've been in an organization for a long time, what, what would a newcomer need to know um, to get their work done? And so that forces people to reflect on, oh yeah, how do we do things around here without using the loaded word culture? Is there any good examples right now as sort of best practice? Because there's been six months of sort of reactive crisis, and now it's sort of people have got to start thinking about getting past that and into a period of sort of transformation. Are you aware of any sort of best practice or good examples of what organizations or institutions are up to at the moment? 
Yeah. So it almost feels like you're saying, what's the right culture? And, um, yeah. and, and I can't give you that answer, <laughs> no, yeah. but, but for a good reason, right? Um, yeah. I'm not trying to be slippery. The right culture is the culture that works for that organization and support yeah. and underpins the people and the goals and the strategies. Um, you know, I, I, tell, I, I tell the story of, of Toyota, which is, you know, probably one of the finest examples held up of, of, in, in this incredible, rather unique culture that enables people to not only, um, you know, well, enabled the rise of Toyota as we know it, right, in yeah. terms of its incredible commitment to quality, in terms of yeah. its commercial success. Um, and there have been books and books and articles and everything written about this culture where everybody um, is constantly sort of in a learning mindset. Um, there, you know, there's no shame in stopping the production line in order to immediately fix quality, you know, emphasis on just in time, emphasis on sort of, um, on, you know, on the front line problem solving. Um, and we can write about it till, you know, endlessly. No organization has been able to replicate that culture um, wow. because, because it's just very difficult um, and because it is so tightly, tightly coupled with what Toyota is achieving strategically and through its people and potentially also through the larger political, institutional, economic and national cultures that it's embedded in. So I think when we, you know, that's not a very good answer. It sort of sounds like saying there is no best culture and there's no way to build it because it might be entirely unique. Now, let's let's reset that though the point is the best culture is the culture that underpins what you've got and so what i have seen as best practice and in fact i was having a conversation with someone you know interestingly enough a high-tech company and she worked in the in the hr division where they were thinking very carefully about what they wanted their culture to be what elements of it they needed to um, reinforce especially now and she was very mindful as to the need to fit this into the broader articulation of where are we going as a company? Um, what is our strategy? How are we responding in the current climate? How are we reformulating our work from home? How are we bringing in new recruits? How are we growing as a company? And so in the same way that companies or any organization need to be mindful and deliberate about what are we doing in terms of our strategy, in terms of our people, in terms of our execution? Culture should be part of that conversation because if you don't just do all these other things and, and have the culture follow, or you don't just initiate some huge best practice culture change initiative because you know, your peer or competitor is doing it and you want one too, it has to be integrated or else it's not going to work. You know, Toyota doesn't be Toyota just because of a culture or just because of a strategy or just because of an operational, you know, set of operational practices. It does it because of all those things together. And I think culture should get just as much attention as the other pieces in terms of it sort of unpicking it and deliberately thinking through what we have and how we might want to manage it. This is a, a strength of culture question. We both work for an institution that's 800 years old. There's so many things that have been lost and gained What's going to be difficult for this institution sort of going forward to keep and maintain? What does it need to, you know, to do to maintain its culture? Yeah, I think, um, I think it's a fascinating question. And I have been here for five years. I think you can tell from my accent, um, even though I am British born, I was not British raised. Um, and 
again, as a newcomer to this organization in the first few years, boy, did I learn a lot about how things were done in this academic setting as opposed to the US academic settings I had been in. And some of them seemed, you know, some of the things um, seemed very arcane, sort of rules that, you know, probably were written down 700 years ago and that was just the way we did things. Um, so cultures are interesting that way, especially long-lived cultures. And I think in a university, it's not like a typical business culture where, you know, as you pointed out, A, it's lasted for many hundreds of years or been in existence for many hundreds of years, this organization. There are some commonalities, but clearly we've changed a great deal. I mean, you and I would not be having a recorded conversation over Zoom over yeah. Ago, yeah. or even 100 or yeah. even 10. Um, yeah. So, so cultures are constantly adapting, but there should be some threads of continuity. Um, a university is a particularly interesting organization because a massive number of our people turn over intendedly, um, and those are the students. And so yeah. we have, like any organization, multiple cultures within us. Um, you know, we have 31 colleges, we have multiple departments. So not only do we have these sort of different subcultures, as you will, that any organization might have across roles or departments or geographies. But we also have people, some people who've been here for their entire careers, um, and some people arrive you know, and stay for one year in a, in a master's course. Some people arrive and stay for three. Um, some people stay for longer, depending on their PhD and how long that takes. So, so thinking about how do you um, convey a culture and sustain it in that setting is particularly interesting. And I think there's two things that 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 um, you know that matter maybe more in a university setting than than in a corporate setting. So one is the role of the physical infrastructure and the rituals. Um, yeah. And again, going back to Ed Schein, he has a very well-known model of uh, organizational culture where he argues that these sort of what he calls artifacts, so the physical aspects um, and the visible trappings of culture are one signal of culture, but they're not really the real answer. So I could walk into a, a typical corporate setting and I could see an open plan office and I could see, you know, what I call a foosball table and I could think, wow, these people yeah. are creative cutting edge, you know, they have fun at work, they're constantly pushing the boundaries, it's like Silicon Valley, right? Yeah. Um, no, it might have just been that they wanted to look like that. Um, and in fact, they're constantly infighting and nobody's ever at their desks and nobody ever plays foosball, for example. Um, so Shine warns us that the artifacts might be just that. And so you need to really get below the surface to understand really what these sort of taking for granted practices and beliefs are, as I call them. Um, in a university setting, I think we benefit from, in part because we have a lot of turnover and, it, you know, many of our, our, our physical settings are not only iconic and old, but very important in conveying a certain type of, of experience. Um, and students know that before they come. That's what's also really interesting. You don't need to enter um, a particular institution you do to really really experience a culture but culture bleeds over in many ways so i think the culture of cambridge you know has people have a sense and an understanding of what a college is they have a sense and an understanding of what a formal hall is they have a much better sense actually now that harry potter is in existence um i was actually at oxford before harry potter was written and um and i think about how different it is that you know i had to learn all of those behaviors and norms um as a you know, as a student being first exposed to it, 
my children just sort of know them so they can waltz into any given dining hall at Oxford and Cambridge and you know it's just like Harry Potter right um, and so I think we need to understand that universities have these sort of formal elements that actually make a bigger difference to them than they do in a sort of contemporary typical office environment um, that these things carry a symbolism not just within the organization but beyond it and so that's what helps us that's what helps us understand that Cambridge is Cambridge it creates a sense of distinctiveness it creates a sense of belonging and it creates a sense of of I'm here and so yeah. back to this idea that individuals feel connected um, we are going to see the first cohort coming in this year who does not experience those things like formal yeah. hall for example like their living arrangements in the same way as we have at least not for hundreds and hundreds of years yeah. um, and it will be very interesting to know how they experience culture now the good news on that is you know it's never just about the physical environment and the artifacts it's about the way we create meaning out of those the way we convey that meaning to each other the way we treat each other so the stories that get told in college um, the ways in which undergraduates relate to each other the ways that which um, um, faculty members and staff relate to students those are going to continue and those are actually what i referred to earlier the practices those are the day-to-day -day interfaces upon which we convey and sustain our culture and so i think one of the most important things um, in any organization is recognizing what those are and keeping the ones that you want alive, whether you're in person or not. Um, yeah. And also reminding people what it is about this entity. It's not just the formal halls or the way your college looks and feels. It's the history of, of you know, innovation. It's the history of being led by curiosity. It's yeah. how that's been enacted over time and how we're enacting it now and some of the most interesting and I suppose you could say best practices responses to the COVID pandemic that I've seen have been organizational leaders coming out and saying you know we have we haven't been through this before but we have been through things before that have tested us and, and shown us and helped establish our commitment to you know research excellence for example and this is the this is the strength and this is the belief and this is the set of practices upon which we're moving forward so reminding people and you know as recently as today um the the real concern around how the a-logs have been treated and what that means for offer holders and stephen Toop has come out with a statement on the website and and being sent to people that says that conveys who we are as a university and what that means to our decision making and our and our actions around this and i think that is a, a fine example of how one perpetuates um, who we are and and you know the culture of the organization and and also you know it, it those are moments when culture has to shine um, and and has to has to come into the equation or else responses end up looking inauthentic thinking right now is probably the worry around trying to create connections and discovery and those sort of off-topic sort of side chats and creativity and I guess are there any sort of ideas that you can think of that can help you know those conversations happen I think 
um, just being really aware that there are people who are brand new that yeah. um, that need to feel included, that need to feel that this is a special place and that need to know what it is to them. Um, and, and not to add responsibility to what will be a very, very busy academic year for all faculty and staff uh, and upper year students. But I think people in those, in those situations can help newcomers, can help students to, to be aware of, of you know, how do we do things around here and to think about novel ways that that can be conveyed I think those are really important. I think the other thing is just in work groups and teams, and I've seen this in my own department, which is the Judge Business School, the workload has been intense. The uncertainty has been considerable, um, and that leads to stress. And especially as we spend longer and longer interacting only um, through technology, I think we need to pause and remind ourselves mm. what we actually do well who we are as an organization. Again, what is our culture? Um, you know, we're innovative. We make the best of um, what sometimes might be scarce resources, uh, perhaps compared to our peers. And those are the skills on display right now. And actually having managers and team leaders actually mention the importance of, you know, being resourceful or being innovative when they see it happening and just reminding people that that is who we are that was who we were and that still is who we are, I think can be really powerful. Again, it's about the day-to-day -day stuff. It's not about the banners and the, and the, and the huge, um, you know, it's not about rolling out something new. It's about reminding yeah. people of who we are and still are in ways that actually accommodate and adjust to the realities that we're in. And I think from there, there's huge opportunity. I mean, you, you mentioned earlier, it's an 800 year old institution. You know, the culture has changed. It has to change. It changes every time. There's new demands, um, you know, from society. It changes every time new people come in or new generation comes in, and, and it has to. But it's striking that balance between how much do we retain the things that have made us function, that have made us good at what we do, that make us distinctive, um, and that we value and that bring us together, versus the things that we need to sort of build on from there. And when I talk to people about changing the culture, I always say you're not you're not really aiming to change the culture. You're aiming to take the strengths of the culture that are working well for you and orient those towards the new opportunities and challenges. And working from that basis, I mean, sometimes yes, you have to change a culture when it's really not working, when it's really out of tune or really negative. Um, but other times you find out what is it about our innovativeness? What is it about our ability to be resourceful that we can now apply to this next set of challenges? And so it's as much about helping people make sense of the world through that lens um, as it is about, you know, um, creating something new. And bringing it back to your role at the judge business. So when, you're, when you've got your sort of cohort of students, what is the sort of take-home message that you sort of want your students to sort of take away? I think many people, especially in when they come to a managerial position, for example, in their organization, think of culture as something that is being done to them, that is unmanageable, that is like the ether. We, we can't really grasp it. But I want them to say, actually, culture can be boiled down to these practices and beliefs, the chicken and the egg. Yes, it's a chicken and an egg, 
but like everything else we can we can we can be reflective about those we can ask ourselves to articulate what those are and ask others to articulate what they are get a deeper understanding of them and then understand that they're manageable just like anything else just like your budget just like your strategy just like your marketing plan um, just like your recruitment plan none of those things can you control 100% of but you can be mindful of what's driving them and where you're going with them and then put in some plans for how you steer it and it's the same with culture Jennifer it's been absolutely fascinating um, talking about organizational culture and the uh, chicken in the egg conversation uh, thank you so much for your time it's been it's been great thank you Nick I really enjoyed it that's it from us at the we are the university podcast if you like what you're hearing don't forget to head on over to apple podcasts or spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from and give us a five-star rating <laughs>